generally been a fan of the Pulitzer Prizes throughout my life, but uh, over time they have gotten more political. I mean, you you can go way back in the day for Pulitzer Prizes, and they they would give awards to um, all kinds of different uh, authors and, and and writings and this and that. But they have uh, they like the Nobel Prize. Uh, similar to a, a lot of other awards, have gone way, way, way trying to send a message. And right. this week they announced the Pulitzer Prize for the 1619 Project. That was that thing they did in the New York Times where they made the argument that the United States is founded on slavery and we're shot through and through with racism from the very founding. Right, and that's the great animating force in American history. Uh, Tim Sandifer, Tim the lawyer, a longtime uh, fan favorite and host favorite here on the Armstrong and Getty Show, uh, joins us to discuss the, the uh, 1619 Project and its flaws and the silliness of the uh, Pulitzer Prize. Tim is the vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Institute. Hey, Tim, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Good. Jack seems particularly concerned about the state of your beard. How is it? It's uh, untrimmed, I'm, a, I'm afraid to say. I've taken the excuse of not going to the office to uh, start becoming a mountain man. So, Tim, <laughs> Tim the lawyer and your beard joins us today. It's fantastic to have you both with us. Um, uh, before we get into this, what was the quote you hit we, me with the other day when we were texting about institutions and how they, they move leftward over time? Because that's clearly happened yeah. with the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, it certainly has. The, the famous uh, Soviet expert Robert Conquest, said that uh, any organization that is not explicitly right-wing will become left-wing over time. Is there a reason why that that seems to happen? Is there a reason why that happens? Uh, I've got a couple theories. One of them is I think that left-wing folks just really like the idea of bureaucracy. Uh, it, It really appeals to them, and so they tend to be attracted toward a bureaucracy, whereas people who are more oriented toward economic productivity they tend to to try and weed out inefficiencies, and they they don't like bureaucracy mm. very much. And so, any kind of an organization, I think, gradually tends to attract the kind of personalities that don't produce a lot, but really like to sit around and have meetings. And that tends to be a left wing. That's a pretty good theory, right there. Well, well, right, yeah, obviously, by the nature of people who like or dislike bureaucracies and like or dislike being in them, it's going to go further and further left. I get that. But so, could you restate, like we're in a debate, state your opponent's you know argument for them? What was the thesis of the sixteen nineteen project before you start to uh, tear it apart? Yeah, well, there's a number of them because the 69 Project consists of a large number of articles by different right. writers. But the, the overall point of view is to try and say that America was deep, is, is essentially founded on slavery and anti-black racism, specifically anti-black racism. The, the articles don't really talk any, at all, really, about other forms of racism, such as the anti-Chinese racism in California in the 19th century, which really needs to be talked about. So it's kind of shocking, the, the, the blinders in that respect. But it consisted of a number of articles, some of which make you know very good, valid points about how black history, unfortunately, is really not very well known to a lot of, uh, of white Americans, that the, the influence that it's had on American democracy has sometimes been ignored by historians over time, things like really valuable points that they make. Unfortunately, the articles also make the really ludicrous and completely false claim that America is fundamentally premised on slavery, that the Constitution was written to protect slavery, and it ignores things like, you know, the countless white abolitionists or black abolitionists who believe that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document 
even before the Civil War. And, and those kinds of ideological blind spots are a real problem. But to me, uh, what I think is really most objectionable has been how the authors have dealt with criticism that came out after it was published. There have been a lot of historians who have criticized the project and, and pointed out its flaws. And rather than address those head on, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won the, the prize uh, this week, her, her response has been rather than to engage them just simply to say, well, the only reason you're criticizing me is because you're white, or the only reason you're criticizing me is because I'm black, and refuse to address the salient points and arguments that historians have made against her position. That, to my mind, should have been a veto on, on the idea of giving her any kind of an award. That is so of the modern school of, of thought or non-thought, where identity is is a proof of, of, of opinion as opposed to, you know, rigorous examination. She is saying exactly what the Academy would have her say, Tim. Uh, this is my truth. How dare you? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's been it's, her behavior has really been quite disgraceful. There's the, there are some really good arguments that have been made against the project. Particularly, one I would recommend to people who are interested in this is a guy named Phil Magnus, M A G N E S S. He he just published a, a book of his critiques of the 1619 project that are really quite solid, but. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones has refused to address the points that Magnus has made, has simply said, well, the only reason you're saying this is because you're white. And, and so even though most of the authors who participated in the 1619 Project are themselves white, uh, it's really a shame that the Pulitzer Prizes, which once really had credibility, have instead decided to become so ideological as to give an award to somebody who, who really does not comply with the rules that have been established for, for coming up with the truth. You know, fair and open argument that addresses the merits. I have what I think is a well-founded fear that the 1619 Project is going to find its way into my kids' schooling at some level. Oh, it's already happening in some places. In New York, there have been some schools that have adopted the 1619 Project as part of the, the school curriculum. And what that means is that school, students are being taught that America as an idea is essentially against black people. Now, if you're a black student, you can imagine, if, if you were a black student, what you would think if that's the message you're being taught in the classroom. But if you're a white student also, imagine, what that, imagine how that affects your image of what America is or should be. And this is not something that can be laughed at or scorned. Quite the contrary, that people's idea of what America is all about has been one of the most important motivating factors in this country's progress throughout its history. And the idea that American ideals are rooted in equality and liberty is, you know, that's one reason why Martin Luther King succeeded so well at his project was because he appealed to those values. But now you come along with a, a, something that is essentially this nihilistic stew of hatred for the principles on which this country was based, or rather just a shrug at them to say that, oh, no, when the founding fathers said all men are created equal, they didn't really mean it. Uh, with no evidence to support that argument, really. Uh, that, when, in fact, there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. Of course, absolutely. I, and and it, it just I think it's a real threat to the long-term prospects of this country if that's the, the view people take 
of what our institutions are about. I have absolutely no objection. I don't think anybody has an objection to talking about black history, about the evils of slavery, about the, the showdowns over its legacy that we had in the 1960s. All those sorts of things are important lessons that everybody is interested in hearing about. But the 1619 Project goes too far and, and takes, a, a, takes a different direction when it says, no, no, America was always about hating black people. That's That's just... Yeah, t- Tim and I were conversing the other day about how great it is that the Reconstruction era, or the the era between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, which has just kind of been left out of my my entire um, uh, 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 s- s- all my schooling. Mm-hmm. You, you leapt from the Civil War to the Civil Rights, and not the hundred years in between that were so awful for so many Black people in America. Oh, it's great that that is like become a hot property. For here, people here. to write about and talk about, I'm all for that. But yeah. as you were just saying, Tim, this if we if, our, if the next generation decides either we are a racist country or uh, or or a bad country, and we, clearly the the next century is going to be a battle between the United States and China for the soul of the world, it would really be a tragedy to have the country that currently has millions of slaves and is actually racist end up winning the ideological war because we feel so bad about ourselves. That, and ideological war is exactly the term for it, because what, one reason that motivates the, the uh, Nicole Jones and the other 1619 authors is an attempt to try and portray capitalism as inherently allied with slavery, as being basically made out of the same mold, which is absurd. I mean, historically, it's ridiculous. It's exactly the opposite of that. In fact, pro-slavery thinking in the 19th century is the source of anti-capitalist thinking today. That's If you read the writings of the defenders of slavery in the 1850s and 1860s, they were making the same arguments against capitalism that are being made by, capitali- by the enemies of capitalism today. That is, that it was rooted in greed that, uh, and alienation and uh, filthy lucre, and that what we needed instead was a social system that would take care of everybody and protect everybody. And, you know, who needs freedom after all? What we need is, is hierarchy and control and safety. And that, that was the pro-slavery argument now, just like it's the anti-capitalist argument today. So in order to obscure that fact and to, and to try and make the opposite argument and to try to portray capitalism as bad, the ideological left has tried to smear it with capitalism, and that is one of the things that, I'm sorry, smear capitalism with slavery, and that's one of the things that the 1619 Project has has really aimed at, and that's really a shame. It deserves criticism, and those critiques should be fairly addressed rather than just shrugged off in the way that these authors have done. You know, it's interesting that even the New York Times itself has backed away from the claims of the 1619 Project. I don't know if you remember this. But a couple months ago, the, the New York Times actually added a, an addendum to these articles that retreated from its language. That means it, this must be the first time the Pulitzer Prize has ever been awarded to an article that has, in one sense or another, been retracted by the newspaper before the award was given. It's wow. quite astonishing. <laughs> wow. Hey, in the time we have left, Tim, Tim Sandifer from the Goldwater Institute is on the line. Um, is there a specific historical um, uh, twist in the 1619 Project you'd like to untwist, whether it be that the primary motivation of having the revolution was to preserve slavery or some of the ridiculous stuff that's said about Lincoln and his relationship with, say, Frederick Douglass, uh, anything in particular uh, 
and got your uh, your your well, knickers in a twist? Well, you know, Douglas is basically ignored by these 1619 Project articles. Yeah, you know, to me, the number one issue, the central point, is the claim that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. And that is a, a, a historical falsehood that ignores people like Douglas who argued to the opposite. No, the Constitution is a freedom document. The Constitution doesn't even use the word slave or slavery in it. And to argue that it was a pro-slavery document is to agree with Judge Taney in the infamous Dred Scott opinion. That's what Dred Scott says. It says the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. If you agree with the 1619 Project perspective that the Constitution is pro-slavery, then you are saying that Taney was correct in Dred Scott to say that the Constitution does not acknowledge black people as human beings with natural rights. And that is completely incorrect. That's completely false. Douglas and other anti-slavery advocates said, no, the Constitution is a pro-freedom document that is, in its philosophical essence, it was anti-slavery, and that gave the federal government power to restrict or eliminate slavery if politicians had the guts to do that. And, of course, unfortunately, it took until the 1860s before politicians did have the guts to, to take a step. So to me, that's really the essential error in the in the articles now phil magnus in his book he gets into some of the other critiques but in the articles that i've written on the subject i've tried to emphasize that that this constitution was not a pro-slavery document it was written by people who knew slavery was evil and they just thought that it would go away they thought people would come to their senses and that economics would render slavery unnecessary unfortunately they were wrong which is why we saw we had a showdown in the 1860s about it tim sandifer uh, Tim, it's always uh, a pleasure and enlightening. We thank you for uh, speaking your truth. Boy, I hate that that phrase. And his beard's that. truth. Right, and, and your beard. It, it sounds so stupid. How do people stand to talk in that SJW jargon? I just don't get it. Well, you have to be surrounded by uh, your, fellow, your co-religionists, people who are spouting yeah. the same nonsense. Otherwise, it sounds like nonsense. It's a cult. You're right. It really is a it really is a religious cult. That's exactly right. Tim Sandifer, the vice president for lit- litigation for the Goldwater Institute. Tim, uh, best to the lovely Mrs. Sandifer, and we will talk soon. All right. And we absolutely have to have Tim on again because he's one of the great libertarian uh, thinkers and writers in America. Honestly, and to not talk about the government's role in closing down all these businesses and everything like that during this time because it's extraordinary. We got to talk to him about that sometime. Here, here. Uh, Love really that idea. Our text line is 415-295-KFTC. Armstrong and Getty. The government has declared them essential. The Armstrong and Getty Show. <laughs> That's right. I've still got my little badge if I ever get pulled over by the cops. Showing I'm essential. No way I'm getting pulled over, man. I'm running. Um, that was awesome talking to Tim. If you missed uh, our discussion with Tim Sandifer about a variety of things, uh, check out the podcast. Go to armstrongandgetty.com. So, you know, maybe a little bit later on I want to address some of the uh, the stuff about Lincoln that is okay. utterly ridiculous. Uh, I love that. But anyway. So um, uh, my kids have just gotten getting into The Simpsons recently. I'm trying to find episodes that are uh, uh, not bothersome enough that an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old can watch them, but they really like it. One of the stars of The Simpsons, one of the person that does a whole bunch of voices, Hank Azaria, was a- answering some questions about that recently. 
Uh, yeah, he was asked, uh, what, namely, what, what was your favorite Simpsons voice to do? The one I enjoy the most, uh, Conan, <laughs> my friend, is Professor Frank. It's, to me, it's the vocal equivalent of a peanut. I cannot stop once I start. If I keep going, I simply cannot stop. It annoys the uh, doodles out of my wife. Uh, you can't be depressed making that. I think that's what it is. It's like a natural mood elevator. If you're down and you start talking this way, it's very difficult to remain depressed. <laughs> Believe so, him. Is he on Conan's podcast, Conan no, O'Brien's? Is no, I think okay? that was just a Zoom uh, interview for the his show proper. He just okay. brought him on as a guest. Um, I've heard Conan O'Brien's podcast is great. I, I keep wanting to, to check that. it out. It's supposed to be fantastic. I'm a big and fan of Conan. What's the next Hank Azaria uh, They asked, uh, what are the most difficult voices to do? Yeah, Mo, yeah, it's raspy. So if you talk like this for too long, eventually you're going you're gonna to shred yourself. And yeah. if Mo's screaming... Then you really got to. I got to save the screaming for the end. Like, Duffman will blow me out in a second. I have to save <laughs> for the end. And I actually dread it. Like, like oh, no, I got a lot of Duffman to do today. <laughs> That's funny. Of course, wow. Conan wrote for The Simpsons. Yes. And Conan claims his greatest thing he's ever done in his life artistically is he wrote the monorail episode. That's I, what he's most proud of in his career. I would agree. <laughs> Quiet, Mom. The mob has spoken. <laughs> that is a brilliant episode, yeah. Well, the biggest story of the week turns out to be completely bogus, <laughs> according to the source of the numbers. We talked about it on Monday. Wait till you hear this. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Russia has a record of silencing its critics. And so when you see that not one, not two, but three doctors who have criticized uh, the coronavirus response in Russia sort of mysteriously fall out of a window, you've got to ask those questions. Is it a series of coincidences? Or is something more sinister at play? Did you actually just <laughs> say that? I did what? what? Are you kidding me? Well, doctors are always flying out of windows. They're known for that. So the fact that three who criticized the Putin administration accidentally tumbled out of windows is probably just a coincidence. I'll read the story from Business Insider. Their reporter, Sophia Ankel reported in late April that ambulances in Moscow were forced to line up for hours to drop patients off at hospitals as COVID-19 exploded in Russia. Such is the volume of new cases of the virus all of a sudden. One ambulance driver said he waited 15 hours to get to the hospital. What? Doctors have also complained of conditions for medical workers and have even uh, said the government is covering up the true extent of the crisis, according to Ankle, the Business Insider reporter. Uh, better stay away from windows. Yeah, meanwhile, a doctor who had complained about shortages of protective equipment plunged from a hospital window just Saturday night. Alexander Shupov, 37, suffered life-threatening injuries in the fall, according to uh, uh, Business Insider. Or, uh, yeah, Business Insider. He had previously attracted authorities' attention by taking part in a video that said he was ordered to work despite testing positive for COVID-19. He and his colleagues also complained about the lack of personal protective equipment in uh, the city they were working in in Russia. Jeez, he's being forced to work as a doctor, having yes. tested positive for COVID-19. I'm not sure you're going to do a lot of help for your patients. Anyway, oh, yeah. so he does the YouTube video complaining about that and falls out of a window. 
Two other doctors have died after falling from hospital windows during Russia's coronavirus pandemic. And then that CNN reporter says, it makes one speculate if maybe these weren't accidents. Do you freaking <laughs> think, you numbskull? Jesus, good Lord. <laughs> right. Right. It's like the various guys who've uh, committed suicide by shooting themselves in the head three times. CNN willing to assume the worst about every utterance out of anybody about the Trump administration. Right. Willing to give the benefit of the doubt about three doctors in a three-day period falling out of windows to their deaths after criticizing the government. But we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. We, we can't, you know, we can't confirm that they were murdered by the government. I think it's probably just poor Russian architecture. They're known for their easily opened windows that appear suddenly, <laughs> and people just tumble out. You know of what them. they got to do at medical school? Because you got all these tests about, you know, chemistry, aorta, and ventricles, oh, and all these different things. You gotta, right. They got to have one question on there: difference between a door and a window. Right. Right. This is a door. This is a window. You do not open this and step through it. Yeah, this things, is step, to, things to check for before stepping through an opening. If you're leaving, Stairs, for now, instance. <laughs> you'll love. Uh, if you're leaving a room, which of these do you open and walk through? No, 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 no. The Let's window? go over it again. Let's go over it again. <laughs> the door. Check for stairs <laughs> outside the wall. If there are none, that's probably a window. <laughs> but wow, how, do you know a, you, how do you know which one's a window, which is a door again? I don't understand. Man, Putin is one dissident killing son of a gun, isn't he? What's amazing to me about that is, um, aside from that CNN reporter, uh, it's so obvious what is happening there, and Putin doesn't feel like he needs to hide it at all. In fact, he knows he can get away with it, and it and it serves the double benefit of sending the message of, this is what we will do, this is what we can do, Right? nobody's going to stop me, no... no American journalists aren't even willing to say out loud that I did it. Right. Yeah. Yep, that's some pretty good dictating. So that's God one, help the Russian people. That's one of your stories of the day. The other story of the day is Adele turns 32 and is back on Instagram. Adele the singer. She uh, she had gone off Instagram, got a divorce, sold her house. She uh, went on a weight loss thing. She's lost over 100 pounds, and now she's in a... Little black dress and high heels, and uh, posted back on Instagram, looking all crazy hot. And as Joe said earlier, two things we know about this: she will keep the weight off. Absolutely, everybody does, <laughs> and because they're so happy with their loss. And she'll yeah. just be happy forever on Instagram, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Social media will be kind to her, and she'll be <laughs> glad that she came back. <laughs> right. So right. I, I wish that little g- gal well. But oh, really, speaking of little gals, I wish well. RBG's in the hospital again. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, the biggest news story of the week, probably, about the coronavirus, turns out to be completely bunk. We'll explain how in a second. Quick word, though, from our friends at Simply Safe, the makers of the best overall home security system of 2020, according to U.S. News and World Report. I would like to uh, agree with that. Simply Safe is all the good stuff with a great home security system. The doorbell alerts, the cameras, the motion sensors, everything you want. But none of the bad stuff, the expensive stuff, the inconvenient stuff that you get from the traditional companies. Yeah, I assume everybody would like to have a home security system. You just think, well, the cost and then installation and the whole thing, it's going to be a big deal. No, no, you order it online, you set it up yourself in under an hour. And again, this is the best home security of 2020, according to U.S. News and World Report. This isn't a it'll do sort of situation. Set it up yourself in under an hour. Your home is protected 24-7 with emergency dispatch for break-ins, fire, and more. About 50 cents a day. 
you're not locked into a two-year contract or any outrageous monthly fees or anything like that. And our listeners get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Go to simplysafe.com slash Armstrong. Simply is spelled with an I at the end. S-I-M-P-L-I. Simplysafe.com slash Armstrong. Simplysafe.com slash Armstrong. We didn't mean to spend the entire hour beating up on the New York Times because we beat them up earlier, having won the Pulitzer Prize for a story that was a bunch of crap. I got a few licks left in me. Let's keep going. The 1619 Project. And then Monday on the show, the story broke in the New York Times. Trump administration. Latest information. 3,000 deaths by June the 1st. 200,000 cases a day. And the headline was, Trump continues to argue to open back up the economy. Meanwhile, knowing that all these people are going to die. Because the latest projections were that deaths are going to increase a lot. Double in the next three weeks. Yeah, just over the next three weeks. Yeah, just into June, right? By the end of the month, the number of deaths per day will double and will go from 20,000 cases a day to 200,000 cases a day. Extraordinary. Mr. President, sir. Well, that's what I said at the time. And having I spent a lot of time looking at these numbers. I was like, what? That is a complete outlier. Well, and to their credit, Burks and Fauci also said, no, nah, we haven't seen that. And we did. We don't think that's true. But yeah. um, but the Trump administration was asked a lot about it. And there's been a lot of talk in cable news and policies and bailouts and all this different. Sort and of stuff no corrections it. in the news. And, but and no corrections in the news. And Johns Hopkins put out today. These preliminary results are not forecasts, and it is not accurate to present them as forecasts. In other words, the the, the information people are using, no, you're, you're misusing it completely. Right, right. They said it is absolutely not ready for publishing and certainly not used as a predictive tool. This is like we're halfway through something and somebody leaked it, and it was printed as fact. My question is, since that is clearly true and they're unequivocal in their statement, did New York, did the New York Times not call anybody at Johns Hopkins and say, "Hey, y'all, we just got this uh, projection of yours. It seems crazy. What, what's going on over there?" No, they just went ahead and printed it. There's two choices: they either didn't call to confirm it, or they just left that part out because it would have ruined the story. Either one of them are grotesque in terms of journalism. Yeah, well, I read a, an article earlier. Or, you know, quoted it uh, on a slightly different topic, also COVID-19 related, but John Ziegler, who made the point that, listen, the narrative is now the king. And the narrative drives the journalism. And obviously inconvenient facts and stories are ignored. Not only that, even if you have a contradiction to what you want to print, you just ignore it because the important thing is the narrative. That's just terrible. Well, and yeah. Sean, Sean pointed this out earlier when we were talking that they got it first. They had it first. They got quoted for the story all the time. They got yep. all the clicks. They consider that a win. I guess that's the way it works now. And I was trying to explain to Sean that there was a time when the New York Times, I would have thought, well, if it's in the New York Times, it's true. Because it almost certainly was. Because they're so careful. It wouldn't be in the New York Times if it weren't true because their credibility, their ability to be the most important newspaper in the world rests on the fact that we believe if it's in the New York Times, it's true. Tell me about the dinosaurs, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> and well, now, I see the New York Times as roughly the same as BuzzFeed. And I'm serious about that. I mean, that is horse crap that they printed and promoted and, and used to bludgeon, as usual, the Trump administration and, and Donald J. in particular. It was just garbage. Doesn't it seem like it would have taken one phone call to end that story? I'm, I know. I know. I'm telling you. So, uh... 
But they got the clicks, and that's what counts. RBG's uh, in a hospital again. She's got a bladder infection or something like that. One of the Supreme Court justices that you dismissively refer to by a three-letter acronym. right, Ruth Bader Ginsburg of Harvard and Yale or whatever she is. Uh, Yeah, it's not uncommon for an old gal to have uh, a bit of a bladder problem. Uh, They'll probably get it under control and everything, but she is old as the hills and in the hospital a lot lately. She is in the hospital a lot. It would be extraordinary for Trump to end up in a situation where he appoints three Supreme Court justices in one term. How about one with six months to go till a presidential election? Well, when, when uh, obviously Mitch McConnell had made the argument that you can't do that. Well, that's not exactly correct. <laughs> this situation is different. It doesn't apply here because of something, something I got to go over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's politics, man. Politics. You do what you can get away with. Oh, yeah. It's called power politics, and we uh, do it m- more now than ever. If you can do it, you do do it. Yeah, you said doo-doo. And then, so, uh, let's see, other big stories to talk about. Oh, we talked about earlier that uh, California's lack of cases is not because of the brilliant leadership of pretty, pretty Gavin Newsom at all. It's that the coronavirus had been in California for a very long time. It's a different strain, they're thinking, than the one that's ripping up New York um, and a number of other things. It, we talked about the huge number of giant public events in February in California that should have absolutely spawned outbreaks and just didn't. Um, so that's probably worth knowing. Have you seen the picture of Adele that she posted today? I have not. I have not bothered to seek it out. Can I hold it up to the? Uh, here, I'll hold it up to. Yeah, the, go ahead. Hold it up to the camera here. See if this works. Can I hold it up to where you can even see it? Sure. Yeah. Where's the camera on this? It's the there little it black dot. This is her. There you go. Holy cow! Yeah. Yeah. Oh my golly! And big she, difference. Yeah, she she's, she's like crazy thin. Yeah, exactly. Well, she and and she was very very attractive anyway. I mean, she's got a very really, really pretty face. So yeah. she's. I see. I've never looked good, so I don't know what it would be like to. It's got to be real to, to all of a sudden look great, and then if it goes away, which often happens, I can't mm. imagine what that does to your psyche. I've well, never looked good, so I've never had to worry about it. As a guy who's lost and gained a lot of weight repeatedly, I would I would say this to uh, the young Adele: Do not buy clothes. You want to with every fiber of your being. You're going. You're going to spend yourself. Of course, she's got more money than I'll ever see. But uh, you're going to want to fill your closet with sexy new clothes for your sexy. New, I'm begging you, don't do it. She you lost. will be moving those clothes from house to house for the rest of your life, dreaming of getting back into them. I don't know how tall she is, but she 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 lost 110 pounds. I'm guessing she went from. Wow, two forty to one thirty would be my guess. Yeah, that's probably about right. But uh, I hope you know for her sake. I hope her, her and everybody else ever, that I've ever known that lose a bunch of weight. I hope you get to keep it off. Mm. I've only known two people in my life who've done it. Mm. Our old producer Vince, one of them. Yeah, uh, it's it's not easy to do. Yes, you either have to make your entire life about keeping the weight off. Uh, and 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 get harder core as you go because your body's natural desire to put that weight back on, or you're a one in ten thousand genetic freak. She's got the chance because she's got the money and the time and the and you know the, the chef and all that sort of stuff. But 
Um, we don't need to keep talking about Adele's weight loss. Uh, a bunch Probably of other, not. Twitter's Probably. got some new suggestions, not rules so much as suggestions, among other things. We'll talk about on the Armstrong and Getty Show. is that the president has no intercourse whatsoever with the rest of the the world on dealing with these things. We led, like Barack Obama led in the uh, corona, I mean, excuse me, in, in, in the pandemic that occurred when we were in office. It was kept in Africa. We organized the world. We put things together. I think that last short sentence, we put things together, was the first coherent sentence in that entirely r- rambling Cracker Kroger song. <laughs> he finished strong. And he used the word intercourse again. I know. What Stop is it with that word? Saying intercourse in the midst of a sex scandal. Dummy. It's, and you don't need to. It's not like you got to come up with a, oh, what's another word for intercourse? No, there are lots of other words. Everybody else uses them. Nobody else says intercourse when they're talking about the economy. <laughs> or cooperation. How about cooperation? Economic intercourse. We need, we need more intercourse with the EU. Uh, and I think with the global warming fellatio going on. Oh, wait, whoa, wait. Oh, now, come on, old Uncle Joe. I t- it, well, yeah, that's funny. But his utter inability... To remember what he's talking about or get through a sentence or whatever, that it's going to absolutely undo him <laughs> if, if the campaign ever happens in a conventional sense. I mean, he, he ought to go full 1800s where it was considered embarrassing and undignified to campaign. You just sit at home in your porch and have uh, surrogates go out and, you know, write about you and crisscross the country pumping you up, but you personally would never do it. That's his strategy. He ought to keep his mouth shut, stay in the basement. Boy, I don't. I wouldn't normally think this, but I think he he might. His best shot might be if he just stays out of it, and then he just he just rides on the number of people that dislike Trump, get them to vote for him. Don't mm-hmm. give them a reason to chicken out. That might be his best bet. Yeah, that's a heck of a situation to be in. Don't give the anti-Trump vote any reason to doubt you. That mm. seems like his best. Um, poll in USA Today that's uh, it's different than the way I think, but this is the way Americans uh, apparently feel. More Americans are worried about the sickness than about financial hardship. I'm more worried about my economic situation than the sickness. Uh, but I'm in the minority. Um, well, and somewhat wor- because I'm a quibbler, I, I wish to quibble. Um, can you be worried about both and... Uh, and balance the one sense of caution against the other need. Uh, Why do yeah, I got to pick a favorite? Uh, well, you don't have to. It wasn't an either or. It was, are you, uh, how, how worried are you about contracting COVID-19? Very I'm somewhat, using a lot of soap. That would help. Very somewhat, not to, not at all. I, I'd be a somewhat. Somewhat. Uh, and that's the biggest number. That's the plurality at 45%. Then the same question for financial hardship. Um, are you are you worried about financial hardship? Very somewhat, not too, not at all. 
Oh, I'm very, very worried about the economy going forward. Absolutely. The fallout from people not being able to make their rent, make their mortgage, uh, massive layoffs, businesses that have closed and will never reappear. I mean, it, the slack will be taken up eventually. I'm not, not a doomsayer. People who are just fools, the American economy will roar back eventually, but there will be enormous damage for years to come. I just don't think people understand that. They understand getting really sick and dying. Maybe that's it. I saw a number that one out of four people have either lost their job or taken a pay cut. Yeah. Um, um, I'm surprised which, that number's not higher, actually. Makes that uh, poll a little difficult to understand. Almost everybody I know has either lost their job or taken a pay cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a tiny circle of acquaintances, but almost everybody I know has. We, have, we know people who are essential to the functioning of the business they're in who have been furloughed. I mean, the business can't happen with them gone, but they're gone just because there's no money to pay them. And that's uh, that's craziness. Yeah, a lot but, of companies are thinking, yeah, I, it's terrible to not have you here. We have no money. If we don't let you go or cut your pay, we're going to close. So that's our choice. Well, let's all hope the communist bat fever doesn't mutate to the point that we can't really inoculate ourselves against it. And, and there's a sunset to this thing. <clears throat> I don't really feel like living in a world with this permanently. But oh, I left out my favorite. I, I left out my favorite numbers from this graph. If you get next Dang hour, it. stay tuned.